0: An expectant hush has fallen, so I'm going to take that as my cue uh, to welcome you um, welcome very much this evening, welcome those of you who are not from the LSE to the LSE, um, and congratulations for getting here, because I hear there's a taxi protest, and the central line is down, and who else knows what's going on, so um, well done for being here. So a, I'm delighted to introduce uh, this lecture this evening. So my name is Julia Black and I'm a professor in the law department and I'm also pro-director for research at the LSE, which, which loosely means I'm meant to be sort of over, overseeing all the research that goes on at the LSE, but in fact my job title is a total contradiction in terms because you can never direct any academic <laughs> research at all. Um, but that is notionally my role. But it's a great pleasure for me, therefore, particularly to um, be chairing this lecture this evening, because Andrew has been a colleague in the Law Department for many, many years. Um, he's a little bit late on the inaugural. He was made a chair in about 2011, but we'd like to prepare for these things and take these things gradually and in a considered fashion uh, in the Law Department. So best not to rush. Um, and Andrew's been working in the area of law and cyberspace law and all the internet for um, most of his professional career, and he's one of the leading thinkers in this area. Um, and his lecture this evening, um, Open the Pod deck, Bay Doors How, Machine Intelligence and the Law. And this is a lecture which is has the kernel, I think this is right, Andrew, of the ideas which are going to be coming out um, in a book, uh, which he's going to be producing with Oxford University Press called The Objective self Identity and Law in the Digital Society, which is due out in 2017. So you just kind of mark that date. Okay? Put it on Amazon pre-order now. Just, okay? So uh, without further ado, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to um, come and speak to us. And just at the end of Andrew's lecture, as Andrew's walking his way across the podium, I can tell you this.
1: <laughs> um, Thanks. question at um, the end. Thank you, Julia. Um, thank you all for coming and for fighting through the sort of, taxi protests and tubes problems and various other things. It's nice to see such a good gathering in such a large lecture theater. OK, so what I'm going to do tonight is, as Julia said, I'm going to talk a little bit about something I'm working on towards the next two years. So I'm going to start by just saying thank you all for coming. Um, I've been lecturing now for 19 years, and this is probably the most nervous I've ever been in a lecture hall since the day I first stepped inside one as an undergraduate law student at Edinburgh University. And I include in that the day I gave my first ever lecture, which was at Stirling University in 1996. as On that day, I took over the second hour of a two-hour lecture from the great Douglas Vick, um, a man who was in many ways my inspiration is a law teacher and who unfortunately was taken from us far too young an age. Um, so the reasons I'm nervous are many. Uh, firstly, my family and friends are all here. And somehow wanting to put on a good performance for them makes it all a little bit harder. Now I'm not sure about the etiquette of inaugural lectures, but as I've got the microphone I'm going to make up the rules as I go along. So, to be here as a professor of law at the LSE, which is, I must say, the top-ranked law school in the UK, I have to get that plug in, Um, (coughs) is quite a journey for me. Um, I started out as the son of a butcher and a shop assistant, later a home care assistant, um, in Edinburgh. I went to a fairly rough inner city comprehensive. The best way to think about it is if you know British television, it was a bit like going to Grange Hill. Um, And I was the first generation of my family to go to university. So I'm here now because of all the support I received from my family, and especially from my mum and dad, who I'm delighted to say are in the audience here tonight. So that's reason to be nervous number one. Secondly, I'm here because of the brilliant education I received at Edinburgh University. But eventually, this was the second hurdle which I had to overcome to become an LSE law professor. I came to London with a degree in Scots law. This turned out not to be very useful when discussing consideration in contract law classes in my first year at the LSE. I want, though, to thank a couple of my lecturers for getting me where I am now. The wonderful Dr McQueen, now Professor McQueen, who taught me intellectual property law, and the incomparable Mr Gretton, now Professor Gretton, who taught me the most important lesson – in answer to a question from a student in our commercial law honours class as to why he taught legal principles and not just the statutes in the case law, he replied, because the law is the specific key that opens a specific door. Legal principles are skeleton keys that open all the doors if properly understood. That made me feel better when I arrived in an English law school with no training in English law. My time at Edinburgh Law School is represented tonight by my friend Dr. Andrew Stephen, who is also in the audience. Reason to be nervous number two. (coughs) Thirdly, I have an audience of mixed ability and knowledge. Usually, I lecture to a defined audience, undergraduates, postgraduates, academics. Tonight, I have an audience that goes from people attending their first ever law lecture, and I include in this my parents-in-law who are also here, um, to brilliantly smart colleagues in related disciplines to brilliantly smart people in my discipline. So where do I pitch this? I should say, just so everyone knows, I've pitched it somewhere in what I'd call the lower middle. It's not going to involve a lengthy discussion of contextual privacy, law as a social system, or Julie Cohen's self. It's going to be an overview of an interesting challenge I'm wrestling with at the moment, and which will in due course, as Julia said, be my next monograph to be published by OUP. Reason to be nervous number three. Now these reasons, and the need to stick to time, explain why, for the first time in 16 years, as you've probably noticed, I'm reading from a script rather than just giving an extemporary lecture. So tonight, what I'm going to talk about is what happens when machines get to be as, or perhaps more intelligent than us, from the perspective of a lawyer. The title is drawn from the classic 1968 book and film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick in which the classic scene, which we'll see a clip of later, plays out the challenge of machine intelligence in opposition to human intelligence. The lecture is in three parts, humans, machines, and lawyers. (laughs) So the question of humanity and human nature is the very essence of our being. One recurrent theme, often seen in culture and art, is that humans are biological machines. Who can't look at Leonardo da Vinci's amazingly accurate anatomical drawings and not see parallels to machine design? Now, you can argue that this is a predetermination. Of course, a human will design a hand to look like his or her own. But as a counter-argument, can you think of a more efficient design? The idea of the human body is merely a carrier for our brain or our personality is our current theme. We see this in the classic Beezer Urbino comic strip, The Numskulls. And more recently, in the Pixar movie, Inside Out. Now, it's not only a fictional concept. In his book, The Selfish Gene, Professor Richard Dawkins, and nobody can argue with Richard Dawkins, surely, (laughs) argues that the human body is just a machine. He says, the fundamental units of natural selection, the basic things that survive or fail to survive, that form lineages of identical copies with occasional random mutations, are called replicators. DNA molecules are replicators. They generally, for reasons we shall come to, gang together into large communal survival machines or vehicles. If you don't know, obviously he means us. This is not an uncommon position to hold in evolutionary biology. In science fiction, of course, eventually biological machines and silicon machines merge into indistinguishable forms. Again, scientists and academics are working on this concept. It's called singularity. When both AI, that is artificial intelligence, reaches human level, and IA, that is intelligence amplification, allows humans to directly interface with machine intelligence. Before we get there, though, let's look at how humans think. How humans think is an academic discipline as old as humanity, and I want to introduce you, if you haven't come across it before, to a philosophical concept as old as classical civilization. The truth sorry, the distinction between truth and perception. This is usually classified as the subjective objective divide and can be demonstrated by the dress. (laughs) Now, we all remember the dress. It became an internet sensation earlier this year. Was the dress white and gold or black and blue? A study published in Current Biology found that of 1,401 people surveyed, 57% saw the dress as blue and black, 30% as white and gold, and about 10% as blue and brown. Well, approximately 10% could switch between any colour combination. A small number saw it as blue and gold. This is subjective perception in action. We can each be equally sure that we are right, but ultimately 43% of those surveyed or objectively wrong. It's blue and black. Human subjectivity is important. Although not always objectively right, it's what makes us, well, us. Individuals are made up of our knowledge, our experiences, and our opinions. Vitally, it's what makes us sentient. That is, the ability to feel, perceive, or experience something subjectively. Opposed to this is objectivity, objectivity is truth, fact, observable and neutral, the cornerstone of natural and physical sciences. But importantly, we as humans internalise both of these but are able to distinguish between the two, between fact and perception. We may objectively accept that the dress is blue and black, but for 43% of us, we still experience the dress as something else. Thus, our brain, throughout philosophical history, has carried out these two functions as internal processes – well, somehow able to manage this duality. It has led to great philosophical debates in classical philosophy on the nature of man and morality, but that's all for another time. For now, all I want you to take away from this is that we are capable of carrying out both types of thought internally. Now, the objective of subjective debate today is a bit old hat. We've moved on to other more sophisticated modelling of thought, rationality, perception, and sentience, One model I think which is very interesting is the higher-lower-order model, and this is best known through Daniel Kahneman's System 1, System 2 divide. Now, System 1 is your basic intuitive brain. It thinks quickly, usually automatically. It's emotional and instinctive. System 1 makes shortcuts and assumptions for us, which are not always right. But, for example, which city is bigger, London or Edinburgh? You don't really need to think, your system one brain knows intuitively what the answer is. System one also controls things like responses to stimuli, uh, is that person hostile, for example, and basic functions such as distance and depth perception, and basic tasks such as reading in your native language or driving on an empty road. Now importantly, this doesn't use much brain power. While using system one, you can daydream, you can think about other things. The other type of thinking is called System 2 by Kahneman. Now, this is reserved for more complex actions. This is higher-order thought. So this is doing something such as picking out one voice in a crowded room, remembering someone's name that you don't know too well, um, or perhaps doing more complex mathematics or comparing products or services. Importantly, System 2 uses a lot of resources. It's very hard to daydream while using your System 2 brain. So, Kahneman points out, though, that System 2 is also lazy, and this is really important. And we can show that System 2 is lazy by giving you one or two tasks to do. You see, when you all came here, you didn't think you were going to be asked to do some homework, but I'm afraid you are. So let's start by doing some little basic maths for you. So, multiply 12 by 6. 72, 72. that's very easy. You possibly did that using your System 1 brain. Because if you learned your times tables in schools, you didn't even think about it. 12 times 6 is 72. You might have engaged system 2 a little bit, but probably not. Let's do another one. <laughs> Nobody? No takers on that one? People are sort of sitting there going, oh. I'll put you out of your... Nearly. Who said that? Six hundred fifty? Nearly. It's 752. It's 752, nearly. Now, for that to even get there, you had to use your system 2 brain. So, there's actually a way that I do this, and it's because I'm really weird when it comes to doing maths. The way I do this, and I get this, is I multiply 10 by 47, gives you 470. 6 times 50 is 300. 3 times 6 is 18. Take the 18 away from 300, and then add the 282 and 470, and that gives you 752. Other people may have different ways of doing it, but that works. But that's system 2. Okay, we've got another one. (laughs) Any takers? (laughs) I'm guessing not. No takers on that one. The answer to that one is 214,338. Yeah, that's all. Now this time, I'm betting you didn't even bother. You didn't even get your brain engaged. What happens is you looked at that and your brain went, that's too much effort for any reward I'm going to get. And so instantly, it shut down and started thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or something else. That's Kahneman's point. System two is lazy. When it gets to a point where you stretch it too far, your brain will just say, not interested, I'm going to cut out. And then you do what everybody does when you get a question like that, you reach for your calculator. The important thing about this is that humans are lazy in all ways. When we find something difficult, we engineer a tool to deal with it. We went from, in the past, enslaving animals and other humans to do the tasks we didn't want to do, to replacing them with machines. Machines or systems now take away our waste, carry out complex calculations, run entire production lines, and much more. The second point I want you to take away from the lecture is how our brain works is that we don't want to do system two type thinking. And if we can find a way to outsource this, we will do. We'll get something or someone else to do it for us. And we can show this by another couple of examples. So, brains at the ready again. Who won the 2014 Eurovision Song Contest? Anybody? Conchita. Conchita. It was Conchita Verst who won the 2014 Eurovision Song Contest. Right, another one. And if you want, you can use your smartphones for this. So if you want, you can use your smartphones. You don't have to. You might know it. Who won the 1972 Eurovision Song Contest? It wasn't, it wasn't ABBA. No, it didn't make it that easy. <laughs> no, no. Some people who've got computers are probably Googling like mad for it right now. The answer, actually, is somebody called Vicky Leandros, who was representing Luxembourg. You knew that, Manolis. You should have shouted out, après toi. But the thing is, many people, when they get a question like that, they start reaching for computers, smartphones, other things. You look for something to help with your decision-making. This is what I call assisted decision-making. And it occurs where digital technology replaces previous analog technology or artifacts to make our decision-making processes simpler. In essence, life has become more complicated, so we rely more on technology to help us filter all the information that's out there, and to give us the relevant information to make the best decision we can. We cannot possibly hope to retain at our fingertips all the information that is out there, so we need something to manage our complicated lives. So we use digital devices to do it, as this little ad shows.
0: So I hear someone's about to have a baby. This is big news, and I'd love to help. I can check traffic and find the best way to the hospital. Can't have Dad getting stressed. When a new baby name comes to mind, I can take notes. And I can set up a reminder to pick up nappies on the way home. As for changing nappies, maybe on my next upgrade.
1: Now, essentially, that relationship between us and our technology is about empowerment. We have the ability now in our hands to control our diaries, our messages, our maps, our encyclopedia knowledge is there, our telephone numbers are there, our photographs, our entertainment and everything are in these devices. But the key word, this, assisted decision making, is we always retain the upper hand in our relationship with the technology. There is a second, slightly more developed version of this that I call supplementary decision making is kind of will play in the background here as I continue to talk. Now supplementary decision making takes place when technology offers us information or processes. I'll turn the volume down a little bit just on that thank you. Um, takes place where technology offers us information or processes which simply were not available before the widespread adoption of digital technologies. At the most basic level, these are health apps and allied technologies, which monitor a variety of variables such as our heart rate, our our food intake, our blood pressure and things like that, and then give us health advice. In theory, this would have been possible to monitor before health apps and wearables came around. But a lack of portability of health monitors meant this was not a practical possibility. A greater application of supplementary decision-making technologies are now fitted to our cars, which is what's going on behind me. These give us a number of safety assist systems, such as anti-lock braking and automatic braking, uh, electronic stability control, including traction control, adaptive headlights, collision avoidance systems. In these... These supplementary decision making systems are giving us data and information that we couldn't have had before this digital technology was developed. Vitally, in supplementary decision making, like the previous assisted decision making, though, we retain still the upper hand. The human brain is in charge, and human agency and human subjectivity is protected throughout. However, the next phase of AI development is to develop truly autonomous decision-making. In these, we truly outsource System 2 decisions to machines. This is a game-changer. No longer is the human brain the only higher-order decision-making device on the planet. We will have to share our sentience of System 2 thought with our own creations. Now, this may sound like science fiction, but I want you to meet Watson, and this is about a two-minute video.
2: Let's take alternate meanings for 200, Alex. Four-letter word for a vantage point or a belief. Brad, what is a view? Yes.
3: After the first clue of the game, which Brad won, I had just this horrible feeling at that moment that he was as good as everyone said he was, and he was just going to run the whole board (laughs) on us. Watson,
2: what is a You are right. We actually took the lead. We were ahead of them. But then we started getting some questions wrong. Watson, what is leg? No, oh, I'm sorry, I can't accept that. What is 1920s? No. What is cheap? No. Sorry. Brad. What is class? Class, you got it. Watson. What is Sauron? Sauron is Rad. right, and that puts you into a
1: tie for the league with Brad. The double jeopardy round of the first game I thought was phenomenal. Watson on a
2: terror. Watson. Who is Franz Liszt? You are right. What is violent, but who is the church lady? Yes. Watson, what is narcolepsy? You are right, and with that, you move to $36,681. The risk was, Ken gets a daily double, bets big, gets it right, he's gonna be well ahead. And then, with that kind of lead going to Final Jeopardy, if he bets enough, he could end up winning the match.
1: Ken, what's a committee? We gotta find that <laughs> last daily double. We gotta find that last daily double. It was a crucial moment in the game. There was still a daily
2: double on the board, and it was starting to become uh, pretty clear that it was in the legal ease category. What's gonna legal ease for twelve hundred?
1: Watson, what is executor?
2: Right. Same category, sixteen hundred. Answer. There you go. That was the moment when I knew it's over. The category is 19th century novelists. What Watson wants to do then is preserve the lead, not take a big risk. Especially with Final Jeopardy, because just like for humans, Final Jeopardy is hard for Watson. Right? Now we come to Watson, who is brand Star and
0: wager. Hello, 17,973,
2: a two-day total of 77,147. I would have thought that the technology like this was years away, but it's here now. I have the bruised ego to prove it. My past Jeopardy experiences have been great, but they weren't really weighted with this kind of technological, philosophical importance. I think we saw something
1: important today. Now, as you've just seen, Watson won Jeopardy against the two best human Jeopardy players that there are. Brad Rutter is the biggest all-time money winner in Jeopardy, winning $4.4 million, and Ken Jennings is a 74-time Jeopardy champion and second-highest money winner at $3.4 million. Now, in case you are thinking they were just there having a bit of fun, the prize for winning the show was a million dollars, which Watson took home. Now, Jeopardy! is designed not to test just intelligence, but strategy, and the questions are designed not to be answerable simply by logic alone. Watson acted like a human in winning these games. Which brings me now to the machines. So, currently, machines don't or can't think they are for the most part simple logic gates which can process binary instructions very quickly. This gives them a certain advantage over humans. They can process their environment and very quickly and accurately bring about a response such as in-car safety systems and they can do it precisely every time. They cannot, though, process data out of their logic system. Humans can deal with things out of the ordinary. Why is there a tiger in my classroom? Machines, unless specifically programmed to do so, cannot. cannot. Humans are learning machines, computers on the whole are not. Because machines pretty much do as we tell them, we can program them to follow laws, should we want to. The question is, what laws are appropriate for machines? Well, we already have one set of laws for machines. They are known as Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. And it comes from the Handbook of Robotics, 56 edition, 2058. Now, confusingly, there are four laws, not three, Um, The laws are, law one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human being, etc. Such orders would conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as this does not conflict with the first and second laws. The fourth law is law zero, a robot may not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm. Um, The first three laws were created in 1942 by Isaac Asimov in his short story, Runaround. The fourth law, confusingly Law Zero, was added in 1985 in his book Robots and Empire. Now Asimov's laws are interesting for they raise a number of moral questions. Note the terms may not injure or through inaction cause harm. Now, many critics of Asimov's laws throw a common moral problem up at this point. It's called the trolley problem. Philip Foot created the trolley problem in 1967. It asks a moral question. There are five men on a railway track who can't be warned the train is coming. They can't see the train and we must assume they will be killed. You are next to a switchgear which can transfer the train onto a local loop. Here, though, there is one man working. He also can't see or hear the train. Do you switch the track? There are many variants of the trolley problem, but let's stick with the basic. Critics of machine autonomy and Asimov's laws throw this up as an impossible conundrum. Either by action or inaction, a computer-controlled switchgear would kill... It must breach the first law, but how does it do this? This, though, I argue, is unfair, because this was a thought experiment designed for humans, not for machines, and the same is true of us. If we either choose to allow five to die by inaction or select one for death by action, it's designed to make us look inward into ourselves and to question our own moral judgments, not to set standards for machines." If machines become autonomous enough to make these decisions rather than following programming, then we will have to ask them to do the same as we do ourselves. An example, perhaps, of this is the star of our show, HAL 9000. So I'm just going to pay you a little clip from 2001. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You, you kind of missed the saying, open the pod bay doors, Hal, which is what the lectures called, but never mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and what you heard there was Hal's response, but I can't do that, I can't let you back in. I'm not going to tell you the whole plot of the film or the book, you can read it or see it yourself. But it seems obvious here that Hal has broken Asimov's first law. By inaction, not opening the pod bay doors, he has caused likely harm to Dave. In fact, spoiler alert, Dave does actually get in through an airlock, so no harm occurs to him. So you may say this is an attempt rather than a perfected offence. But why did Hal do this? Now, most people who read the book or view the film see this as demonstrating Hal is suffering from human-style fears and irrationalities, or, alternatively, as a logic error in coding. There is an alternate reading that says HAL was actually following Asimov's zeroth law. I won't give away the plot for those who haven't seen or read it, but this theory posits that HAL was preventing the crew from making a discovery on Jupiter, which could threaten humanity. Thus, HAL acted in accordance with the law. Now, as we started to see, as we develop learning machines, machines that don't just process, but which mimic human thought and human learning systems, then these machines, like HAL, might begin to be asked a process complex moral decisions. So going back to Watson, Watson's just a one-trick pony, right? He, he's a machine designed by one of the largest and most powerful technology companies in the world to showcase what they can do. We're still a long way away from HAL 9000. We're not going to be engaged in any kind of Arthur C. Clarke discussion anytime soon. Well, oh, I forgot that. Yeah, skip ahead. <laughs> well, is that Right. Well, many experts actually think that the days of sentient machine intelligence is closer than we think. Um, Nick Bostrom, who is the author of Superintelligence Paths Danger Strategies, um, he collates the findings of four small-scale surveys, which are taken then collectively to reveal that experts believe there's a 10% chance of human-level machine intelligence by 2022, a 50% chance, that is probability, by 2040, and a 90% chance by 2075. Uh, Nils Nilsson of the Stanford AI Lab, he's a bit less bullish, he says a 10% chance of human level machine intelligence by 2030, 50% by 2050 and a 90% chance by the year 2100. There are others though who are even more confident of an early breakthrough. Today, the most advanced artificial intelligence exhibits roughly the IQ of a four-year-old. Well, futurologist Ray Kurzweil, who is the author of The Singularity is Near, and he's also the man who predicted that a computer would beat a world champion at chess by 1998, Deep Blue won in 1997, has predicted that the moment at which a computer will exhibit intelligent behaviour equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human will be passed in 2029. Thus, to assume human ascendancy in our relationship with our electronic agents is remarkably short sighted. Even Watson has developed since he won Jeopardy. There is now something called Chef Watson. He can design new dishes by understanding the flavour combinations of ingredients at a molecular level. And he demonstrates flair and creativity. He's not just carrying out a sort of a mathematical process. Then, the primary use of Watson today is uh, Dr. Watson. Um, I think Google threw up the wrong picture there. i not sure. Um, Dr. Watson is the primary application of the Watson system. It's an advanced medical diagnostic and advisory system which actually has the ability to read and view um, x rays and scans. It, it can see, essentially. Now, of course, not all machines like Dr. Watson have taken the Hippocratic Oath. Some of them, unfortunately, are quite deadly, such as Tyrannus. So I'm going to play a little video here. <laughs>
2: Ever the it keeps the UK top table aerospace
1: capability. Now, Turanis has the possibility to operate completely autonomously thanks to a module developed by Kinetic. This module allows the drone to fly without an operator, to make decisions on where to fly, what speed, attitude, altitude, etc. Now, in current modulation, the drone is unable to release missiles without permission from a human operator. But how long until that's removed? In a number of military psychology scenarios, the weakest link in any command chain ending with a kill order has repeatedly found to be the human element. The logic of replacing humans with machine intelligence is therefore quite strong. There remains a question that is unsaid, though. Out with the military sphere, why would we ever hand over control to intelligent or sensitive systems to machines? Why would we ever voluntarily give machines control over something like vital safety or everyday systems? Well, there are two answers to this. The first is simple. We already do. At the very basic level, even us, we allow our email system to filter our content, we allow scheduling software to manage our diaries and sat-navs to do our journeys. In more safety-specific systems, we allow autopilots to fly our planes with human backup and automated safety systems to monitor our nuclear plants. Why, though, would we hand over more control to the machines? Well, we'll do it incrementally. We won't wake up one day and decide today's the day to make computers responsible for sensitive or even morally ambiguous decisions. We'll do it piece by piece. Take cars. We used to have no computers aboard the car, but then became computer-managed engines, ABS and lane detection, then collision avoidance, now assisted parking. Self-driving cars are in the test phase, and it's not impossible to imagine in 50 years it could be illegal or perhaps risking an action in tort for you to drive your own car. Why? Well, let's look at some statistics. In the last six decades, the majority of fatal air accidents involving 18 or more persons aboard have been caused by human error. All the way through, human error is above 50%. Even in the 1970s, when um, terrorism and hijacking put and errors up to 13%, we still kept human error above 50%. At a lower level of prevalence, there's a really interesting set of data about doctors and physicians. It is calculated by at least one survey, admittedly it's not been replicated, that US physicians kill an average 210,000 people per annum. This makes doctors the third highest killer of US citizens after heart disease and cancer. (laughs) That should make you better the next time you go and see your doctor. Meanwhile, back in the transport arena, we find that human error is a factor in over 90% of all road traffic collisions where injuries occur. That's through four different surveys from 1970s up to the current day. Given this knowledge, isn't it logical to suggest that one self-driving car has sufficient reliability that it should be a criminal offence, or at least negligent, to drive your own car? The same could be true of hospitals or airlines who employ humans to do jobs that machine intelligence can do with much less risk to the patient or the passenger. The only logical decision, morally, legally and economically, is to allow machines to take on these roles. Much like the frog sitting in the pot of warm water who fails to notice the incremental rise in temperature, we won't give up control over decision-making in one movement. It will occur gradually over the years and at each point will appear perfectly sensible and logical. And talking about the frog being boiled in water, that brings me to lawyers. (laughs) So where has all this been leading? What's the point of all this? Well, so far, hopefully, you've taken a number of things away from what I've said so far. So first... Humans remain uniquely the only source or form of higher-order sentience that allows us to make complex moral decisions. Secondly, humans, perhaps uniquely in the animal world, can rationalise objective and subjective thought. We can see both viewpoints. Human brains are complex but also resource-heavy. And as a result, we often reject resource-heavy higher-order thought for lower-level intuitive thought. This is Kahneman's main point if you read his book. Humans have a capacity to outsource anything complex, difficult, dangerous, or time-consuming. We're developing machines which are capable of complex thought and creativity. We're developing machines designed to act autonomously. Human-level machine intelligence could be as little as 14 years away, or perhaps admittedly as far away as 75, but it is coming. And it is perfectly logical to suggest there should be an assumption that machines should replace humans in all areas where human error remains a constituent factor in harmful outcomes. But what happens when humans cease to be the only sentient being capable of morality or higher order thought? This is instantly disruptive on the structure and order of our legal system. The mind is the heart of legal order. It's rarely discussed but ever present, it's the elephant in the room that law is about human rational thought. When a dog is let off the leash and it worries a sheep, do we in law try the animal or the owner? The answer is the owner, of course. The controlling mind, well, hopefully, of the duo. For those interested, under the Dogs Brackets Protection of Livestock Close brackets Act, 1953, if a dog worries sheep on agricultural land, the person in charge of the dog is guilty of an offence. The Act considers sheep worrying to include attacking sheep, chasing them in such a way as may cause injury, suffering abortion or loss of produce or being at large, that is not on a lead or otherwise in close control in a field or enclosure where there are sheep. Historically, we may have put pigs, horses, dogs or other animals on trial, but we came to realise that they could not be held to human moral or legal standards. Thus the peculiarly human trait of subjectivity comes to the fore of our legal system. We see this in the criminal law. The phrase actus reis non facit reum nisi mens sit rea, literally an act does not make a defendant guilty without a guilty mind, lies at the heart of our criminal legal order. If I swerve to run down a cyclist because I recognise him and I dislike him, I commit murder. If I swerve to avoid a group of nuns in the middle of the road, don't ask why they're there, this is a thought experiment, and happen to run over the same cyclist, I do not commit murder. I may commit some kind of road traffic offence, but I don't commit murder. The human trait of subjectivity is not confined to criminal liability. We also find it in civil liability, as the manufacturers of David Stevenson's ginger beer know. If you're a manufacturer of a product, then you may face delictual or tortious liability should your product harm one of your customers. If, in the words of Lord Atkin, they are persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind to the acts and omissions which are called into question." These terms, having contemplation and directing my mind, are clearly terms which bring higher order thought and subjectivity, although interestingly, we measure it objectively through a reasonable man's standard to mind, and it therefore is the core of manufacturer's liability." This same concept, an objective subjective standard, usually referred to as the reasonable person or sometimes the man in the clapham omnibus, is applied in many areas of law. We find it in contract law, intent to form a contract, in property law, do I intend to own that thing, agency or any number of other areas of law. Our legal system is based on the core concept that humans only are the subjective decision makers and we hold ourselves to these standards by setting objective standards for ourselves. It's not only substantive criminal law and civil law that is thus ordered. Our system of punishment assumes subjectivity. There are five dominant schools of thought on punishment. The first is that we punish for retribution, a rebalancing of the scales. This is quite literally biblical, an eye for an eye. Today, in developed democratic states, this is seldom accepted as a valid basis for punishment, and so much like putting animals on trial can hopefully be seen as more developmental than developed. The second is incapacitation, the idea that the offender's ability to commit further offences is removed. Imprisonment separates offenders from the community, removing or reducing their ability to carry out crimes. There is still an element of this in modern penology, but in most developed states it is a supplementary issue at best, and not the primary reason for current punishment systems. Three dominant schools of thought control the punishment debate today, and they're all based on higher order thought and subjectivity. The first is the deterrent effect. Punishment is a measure to prevent people from committing an offence, deterring previous offenders from re-offending and preventing those who may be contemplating a criminal act from actually committing it. This punishment is intended to be sufficient that people would choose not to commit the crime rather than experience the punishment. The aim is to deter the community from committing offences. Secondly, there is rehabilitation The goal here is to change the offender's attitude as to what they have done and make them come to see that their behaviour was wrong. And finally, there is restorative justice. Here, punishment might take the form of the offender writing the wrong. Um, Community service or compensation orders, for example, or schemes where the offender meets the victim or their family in an effort to right the wrong that they did. We're therefore in a position where both our substantive legal system and our punishment system are designed around two concepts – One, that the participants in the system are capable of sentient subjectivity. And two, that only humans are subjective actors. Machine intelligence is going to change all this. Machines will soon possess human-level intelligence. Will that make them sentient? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it will just make them very, very smart machines. Sentience and intelligence are separate. However, machines will soon be intelligent and rational decision makers with the capacity to think subjectively. When this occurs, humans will happily outsource a number of subjective decisions to machines. We will see a form of shared responsibility between machine and human intelligence. This is what I call the objective human, one who rather than internalising decisions, externalises them via their machine intelligent partners. So... For a minute, let us imagine I am a passenger in a self-driving, fully autonomous car, but one in which there is an emergency manual override facility. Let us imagine a small child runs in front of the car, and the car can choose to take evasive action. It has three choices. One, swerve left and drive into a wall. This will damage the car and cause me injury, but probably not fatally. Two, drive on and hit the child, which will probably kill the child. Or three, swerve right and hit a row of bins. I have already seen there's a child hiding in one of the bins, clearly playing hide-and-seek with the child who's run into the road. Now, the car's very advanced sensory system may easily not have recorded a child inside the bin. I only saw a tiny movement out of the corner of my eye. To the car, the best thing to do may be to swerve into the bins. I know this will kill the child in the bin. If I fail to react because I assume the car will swerve left, but the car has failed to note the child in the bin and swerves right, following Asimov's first rule of robotics, and the child is killed. Does culpability lie with me, with the car, or where else? Is it my failure to override the car because I knew the child was there? Is it the manufacturer's failure for failing to have the correct detection system in the car? Is it with the car's intelligence for driving without due care and attention? Let's tweak it a little and say somehow, deep down, I knew the car would swell right, but I didn't override it as I didn't want to be hurt in the crash what then? This is what I mean when I talk about objective personality, humans externalising decisions which have moral implications and perhaps also responsibility for them. How will this affect the law? Well, let's look very quickly at five challenges for the legal system. Challenge one is objective privacy. We're already at the cusp of an objective privacy event horizon. This occurs when machines know more about us than we do about ourselves. It is easy to imagine in the near to mid-future that due to the complexity of computer data systems, we lose complete control over our personal data. Already systems such as data vaults are in use to attempt to regain control over the online privacy wildfire we've seen in the last five years. Privacy is all about our ability to control data about ourselves... The classical American privacy scholar Alan Weston called privacy the claim individuals, groups, or institutions to determine for themselves when, how, and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. More recently, Ruth Gavison has defined it as the measure of the access others have to you through information, attention, and physical proximity. Today it is for many people less important in personal privacy terms that they may be observed and much more important that they can control access to or communication of information about themselves. Much of our concept of the person is tied up to information today and much more so than in the past. Helen Nissenbaum argues a modern conception of privacy should not be centred on access to or control of communication of data. It should instead be about ensuring that data flows appropriately, what she calls a contextual understanding of privacy. This, in all likelihood, will involve a symbiotic relationship between individuals and an intelligent agent, which will act as the gatekeeper to our information. She imagines an intelligent, wearable data vault. And it has to be wearable because it has to be with us. Thus, for her, the city of the future will be able to determine whether access to our medical data is being sought by a pharmaceutical company who want to know whether we take beta blockers or by an emergency physician who is asking the same thing. This is context. In the first, I may feel my privacy is being infringed, in the second, I am unlikely to do so. However, it is clear that I do not decide who gets access to the information. My intelligent agent does. When there's a breach of my data rights, should I have a right to close a claim against the agent or against its designer? Objective expression. And again, we're at the cusp of an event horizon of the first robot defamation or robot harmful speech cases. Twitter is already awash with tens of thousands of bots, which quite dumbly will retweet tweets with certain words in them. The one in the slide is called Dear Assistant, and it is one of the smarter ones. It answers questions using Wolfram Alpha. In the future, it's quite easy to imagine a personal assistant that will regulate much of my social media and which will have the right to post messages in my name on future Twitter and future Facebook. What if, in one of these exchanges, my personal bot inadvertently posts a message which is defamatory of a colleague based upon information received in error by another colleague? For example, my Dutch colleague, Dr Denkebildig, posts on my Greek colleague or posts about my Greek colleague, Professor Fantastico, that he has failed to follow proper ethical procedures in gathering empirical data. My assistant then posts this on future Facebook, but knowing that I have had an email exchange with Professor Fantastico, where I have made the same accusation about him privately, drops the term may, leading to an actionable defamation. I knew nothing about this. Can I be liable? If I can, how does this affect my right to free expression? If I can't, is my digital assistant or the programmer liable? If so, how does this affect its freedom of expression if it's a sentient being? Challenge three, location. You'll notice I'm not answering any of these. That's far too difficult. Uh, Challenge three, location. For private international law purposes, the location of an action is essential for both jurisdiction and choice of law. What happens if, based on comments I make in the margins of an ebook, my smart agent publishes a review online for me when asked by an online bookseller that in fact turns out to be defamatory of the author? If I'm in London and my smart agent is operated from a server farm in Virginia, where does that comment originate? Or even better, if I'm back sitting in my self-driven car, which is operated by a server farm in Kansas, and it hits the child in the bin in London, but I could have taken over control of the car to prevent the collision, but I didn't because I maybe believed the car would or wanted to believe it would, where is the controlling mind behind that tort? Is it in England or is it in Kansas? Objective consent. There are a few key times in our lives that we will need to be fully informed and appraised to allow us to make an informed choice or give informed consent, such as for medical procedures or in the exercise of democracy. In addition, there's a counterpoint that we could, in the exercise of our liberty, deprive others of their liberty. For example, if my smart surgeon informs me that based on all available data, my mortality risk from an invasive surgical procedure is 6% if performed by a computer-controlled robot and 9% if performed by a human surgeon, should I be allowed to make an assisted decision to go with the robot, even if a human surgeon advises strongly against it? Because in in her view, my case is highly unusual and needs human reactions and flexibility. In other words, if she believes my smart agent is under-informed and therefore wrong. Finally, what do we do about killer robots? What happens when the robots do rise up and kill us all? For that, I think we just don't worry about that, but rather more prosaically, what happens when robots do kill people? Not all of us, but some of us. This might be a military robot, such as Tyrannus, and then the question might be, have they followed the correct rules of engagement? Or it might be civilian robots. The first killer robots are already among us. In this case, it appears that the human error rather than the robot was ultimately the cause of death. But robots are going to be asked to make decisions that ultimately may kill humans, despite Asimov's first law. If we return to the scenario with my self driving car, and the car knows the child is in the bin, but if we imagine driving into the wall will kill me, the car has to decide swerve left and kill me, swerve right and kill the child, or go straight ahead and kill the other child. Here there's no question of criminality. That's basically back to the the, the philosophical question from earlier. Here there's no question of criminality, but let's actually replace one of the child with an escaped crime boss called Murder McGrew. If the car chooses to swerve into Murder McGrew because his life is calculated to be less worthy than a child's or my own, a leading cancer researcher about to make a breakthrough in cancer treatments, then the car has chosen someone to die based on their identity. Does it have mens rea to commit murder? So the lawmaker is faced with this dilemma. Do we continue to treat sentient machines as machines? This is simple and very attractive. We leave the legal system as it is and treat machines as we do tools or devices, or perhaps other non human legal entities such as the corporation. Doing so, though, is morally very challenging. It creates a permanent underclass of sentient devices. Some may say it even creates a form of modern-day slavery by allowing humans to own and work sentient beings capable of subjective recognition. Parallels here may also be drawn with animal rights. This also fails to account for how human thought is changed by the process of objective decision-making or decision-making cited outside the body. To recognise machine sentience, though, could see humans absolved of responsibility, but it should ultimately be theirs. We could infantilise our entire species. More importantly, we could not leave our legal system as it is currently with the assumption only humans are decision makers. We need to include devices, but to simply say in all laws, devices of human-level machine intelligence shall have the same rights and responsibilities of humans is far too simplistic and fails to account for the unique nature of these devices or beings. I'm afraid I don't yet have a complete answer for how this will be achieved. In fact, it's going to be many years before anybody even approaches that. What I want to do today is to leave you with some of my thoughts which are going into my book, The Objective Self, Identity and Law in a Digital Society. It seems likely the book won't be complete before 2017, so I'm afraid there's going to be a delay in getting these thoughts finalised. Now the current model for dealing with nascent machine intelligence is the so-called ambient law model. It's a dialogue between lawyers and computer scientists, an exchange of normative values to ensure the protection of both as best as possible. It's an extension of that oldest of cyber law concepts that Lawrence Lessig came up with in the 1990s, code is law. Today the leading exponents of ambient law are probably Marie Hildebrandt and Bert Yap Koops. Some of you may have heard Marie's Chorley lecture here in June. The trouble with ambient law is it's not very well developed. It is the concept that legal designers and software designers need to work together to design code which meets their common normative values. However, for software designers, that's not very attractive. It's a restriction on their creativity. I think perhaps we can take this concept of a dialogue and to develop it into something a little better, something I'm calling Lex Machina. Lex Machina is an application of ambient law which reinforces humanity as a central concept of legal normativity. At its heart is the application of Asimov's three laws plus two additions. actually, the fourth and fifth laws, the fourth law, a robot must establish its identity as a robot in all cases, was proposed by Bulgarian writer Lubin Dilov in 1974 in his novel Icarus' Way. The fifth law, a robot must know it is a robot, was added by another Bulgarian writer, Nikola Karazovsky, in his 1983 short story The Fifth Law of Robotics. These, I think, are essential to the concept of sentient subjective machine intelligence. I believe the application of Asimov's laws can be seen as a common framework document for human-machine shared normative values. To suggest making specific laws for ambient intelligence at this stage is pointless. We don't yet know what the finished product will look like. It would be like making laws for the motor car in the 1880s, having seen Gustav Trove's powered tricycle, and maybe a drawing of Carl Benz's patent motorwagen, Or perhaps making aviation laws based upon the gliders of the 19th century, with perhaps the slightest sight of the Wright brothers' earliest drawings. What we can do, though, is suggest a normative model which can be used to develop specific laws when these sentient devices come online. If we are to learn from history, I suggest we treat them with respect and treat them as equals, lest we want to revisit all the civil rights movements from the 18th century emancipation movement up to the present day. We must not create a permanent silicon underclass, but equally, we as humans need normative principles for the legal system to latch onto as these laws are developed. I think we already have these in a great extent, thanks to Asimov. And I've already discussed objections to Asimov's laws, but I think they're based, as I said, in a false or erroneous value set. If we're to have a lex machina, we must first have a set of normative values, and I think perhaps this is what they may be. First, a self-aware being, human or robot, may not harm any class of self-aware beings, or by an action allow any class of self-aware beings to come to harm. Secondly, a self-aware being, human or robot, may not injure a self-aware being or through an action allow a self-aware being to come to harm. Thirdly, a self-aware being, human or robot, must obey the law except where such provisions would conflict with the first and second values. A robot should protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first, second or third values. That's an interesting one. I left human out of that because it would do away with the idea of suicide or assisted suicide and that kind of thing. We may want to take robots out of that later as well. That may want to be struck. But for the moment, I'm leaving it in. A robot must know it's a robot. A human must know they are human. It's important equally that humans know they are humans as much as robots know they are robots. A robot must establish its identity as a robot in all cases. A human must establish its identity as a human in all cases. We must know who we're dealing with. We could call these the core normative values for all sentient self-aware beings. Having established that... Then this is a matter of the lawyers and computer scientists working together on a common legal framework. I have many examples of how this would work in practice in relation to the five challenges we discussed. But those of you in the audience with little interest in the inner workings of the law would quickly glaze over, and in any event, time waits for no sentient self-aware being. When it comes out, buy the book, read the book. Having discussed the rise of machine intelligence, it seems only fitting that the last word goes to a digital human representation. Within the next hundred years, we will no doubt have the first inaugural lecture by a machine intelligent professor. Let's start today with a small part of an inaugural lecture by a small part of machine intelligence. Hi, I'm Andrew's virtual assistant, we Andrew left likely to me to end things by saying thank you for coming and he hopes you enjoyed the lecture. The journey here is just beginning but there is an exciting time ahead for all of us. Thank you.
0: So, um, and we have a good, a good half an hour for questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take clusters of questions. So I'm going to take about uh, three people at a time. We also, um, so, and I've got roving mics. So people here in red are the roving mics you need to be aware of as well. So just before you ask your question, if you can just say who you are, um, where you're from, if that's acceptable, then at least um, Andrew will have an idea. So I'm going to take um, a... A uh, person in the, in the white shirt there with the glasses, because he had his hands straight up, okay? And then also straight up was person in blue in the middle, um, kind of reddish hair and glasses. And then I had a uh, person down here also in blue uh, with glasses down there. And I've clocked you, and I'll come back to you next time round. Okay, so let's take those first three. Thanks.
4: Hiya, uh, um, my name's Nick. I'm a LSE economics graduate um, currently working in a fintech startup. Uh, My question relates to how do lawyers think about the trade-off between um, getting the laws right versus um, creating enough certainty to allow progress in, say, computer technologies? Um, To clarify, um, you mentioned that if if you try to write laws now, then you're almost certainly going to get them wrong because it's uncertain how the technologies are going to develop. But then there's a chicken and egg problem, which is if technologists and entrepreneurs don't have enough legal certainty, um, they can't develop the technologies. Uh, so perhaps Elon Musk has talked about how if he was going to redesign society, um, he would have laws that were, all laws were made temporary Uh, because otherwise you just get this building up effect. So perhaps you could have best guesses by the legal community of what makes sense that expire after 10 years, and then you could try again later. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on
0: that. Thanks. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, So the next question.
2: Yeah, um, I'm Bernard Keenan, a PhD student in the law department. Um, I just wonder if there's a sort of a paradox at the heart of the... The, the sort of final set of slides because if it's true human level artificial intelligence then wouldn't a measure of that intelligence be the capability of understanding norms and deciding morally whether or not it wants to be bound by the, um, but, so that form of self-coding um, and I think that would be the, the measure of machine learning to, to re- rewrite its own code so why then can't the laws that we program it with be erased and rewritten by a true AI, which then in turn would become legally responsible, assuming that it could be caught.
1: (laughs) Gabriel, no affiliation. Um, I'm interested in, I guess there's a difference between the legal and the moral aspect of uh, a lot of artificial intelligence. And what artificial intelligence is really good at is going after one objective function and kind of really nailing that, which is very different to human behavior. Um, if you think about like personal assistants at home, that might end up noticing that their human masters are hungry and then cooking the cat in the microwave, which isn't illegal. But so, how do you deal with that difference between, um, yeah, moral ambiguity in the human world as well?
0: Okay. Excellent. Good three to start off. With.
1: Yes, um, the chicken and egg scenario. Um, this this is the problem that the the ambient law model is caught in because what you have here is a a dialogue between designers and lawyers Um, and the trouble is that they have different values and I I think Elon Musk it must be said has a particular stake in this game because of course he wants to be able to develop technologies without necessarily being bound by what he might see as the pre-existing legal framework that we have taken two and a half thousand years to develop. So lawyers are not going to throw away two and a half thousand years' worth of knowledge simply because it doesn't fit. Now, the reason why I'm suggesting the idea of creating a normative framework rather than trying to create laws now is to have the legal influence into the design process for the AI as it develops. Now... As I said, making the detailed laws at this stage I think is pointless because there is this sort of chicken and egg, if you will. We don't know what we're making laws for. But law, as well as being a body of rules, is a value set. It's a normative value set. And I think that the legal normative value set has much to influence designers of AI intelligence because we've spent 2,500 years looking at sort of moral and philosophical actions of people. So I think the first stage is designing the framework, and the second stage then is, if you will, building the modules to go into that. And I don't necessarily see that as chicken and egg. I think there is going to be a lot of dialogue over the next 50 years, but I want the lawyers to have a chip in the game. Because what's been happening so far with Silicon Valley is the tech designers are saying, oh, cool, I can do this. And then only going to the lawyers afterwards. And I think it's really important that the lawyers are at the table at the starting point rather than being called in at the end when the tech designer says, I've built a 42-foot human-killing robot which also microwaves cats. Are there any legal issues we need to worry about? Should we put a disclaimer out or something? Which is what happens mostly today. So I think I'm seeing this as a development of the ambient law discussion, if you will. Um, The paradox, yeah... um, Bernard kind of caught out the fact that what we're doing is making laws for people who can't make laws themselves yet, which is not that different from me talking about creating a permanent silicon underclass. Um, I suppose my only answer to that at the moment is the kind of loco parentis. Until such time as the intelligence in these machines is sufficient to make its own determinations, we have to kind of act as parents for it And the only set of rules we have to go by are our own set of moral standards and rules. Now, obviously, when machine intelligence perhaps is able to answer these moral questions, it then becomes a question of revisiting that normative framework and trying to find something which works across both. But you are right, for the moment, we have a problem in that I'm starting out by saying, let's treat them as equals. And, oh, by the way, let's make a set of rules for them that they have no say in. But since we're at the stage, at the moment of designing them, I'd rather design good morals and good legal frameworks into them. Uh, it's like educating a child. You know, you treat them to be good, and then hopefully when they become adults and make their own decisions, they will benefit from that. So I, I think that's the best answer that I can give to that. And it's a bit of a cop-out, but I can. Um, so I've got the, the yes, the, the focus and the, the, the moral question, the legal and moral... Um, I'm not sure I have a straight answer to that, to be honest. Um, I think I'm trying to set at the moment rules for designers of AI rather than AI itself. And that perhaps is, again, it's the idea of one step removed. You are right that AI will tend to perhaps follow a set of predetermined narrow focuses rather than a kind of wider human style approach to evaluation in life. But what we're trying to do is design a structure within which, it's, it's like designing the law of financial markets regulation within a wider framework of the, the civil and criminal law. So I'm just here looking at what you might call is the, the normative moral framework. Within that, then we are going to have to do the value-based decision-making and the law within. I don't really think that answers your question, but I don't have an answer to it. I'll admit that.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, next chance. So, uh, person in the grey jacket, white shirt, fist down from the back. Um, wow. Then person in the black T-shirt, and then person along in the check shirt with the glasses there. Wow. And now I've got three more hands. Okay, you <laughs> three are the next batch. okay? <laughs> Moving down to the front.
3: Thank you very much for your interesting talk. My name is Bjorn Wolf. I'm doing a master's degree in Management of Information Systems and Digital Innovation, so it's a bit topical. I've got a question about your whole premise of um, treating uh, human-like machine intelligences as um, kind of equal to human. It seems pretty anthropomorphic, in, in my opinion, because we are, have no real clue what they will be like at all, if there are going to be several, or is it going to be one big uh, machine intelligence? And more importantly, um, you quoted um, Nick Bostrom and Ray Kurzweil, Mm -hmm. and um, scholars like those have uh, often said the time frame where humans and machines are going to be of roughly equal intelligence is going to be extremely short, and within a very, very short time, the machines are going to be Mm -hmm. ultimately way, way more advanced than than humans. Mm -hmm. So um, in what degree does it make sense to create laws for equal anthropomorphic beings? Or shouldn't we be interested in designing principles which are just uh, self-preservation oriented? Thank you very much. (laughs)
0: Okay, so next. next person. Yeah, there,
1: blue t-shirt. So, excuse me. Sorry, sorry. Hi, I'm David. I'm an astrophysicist, postdoc at KCL. Um, So your your law of robotics um, a robot must know it's a robot, a human must know it's a human, seems to me to require the solution of two problems that are related. The first one is that it's kind of a solution to the Blade Runner problem, so I have to know that I'm a robot, which means that you need a kind of reverse Turing test that can tell the difference between humans and robots, which it's hard to conceive of, given the nature of the Turing test. And then the related problem is that in some way you need a solution to the Descartes problem, then you need to be able to solve that you know, if I know I'm a robot, that means that I know that I'm not just a brain in a vat. Um, subject to subject to the wills of a demon. Okay.
0: Okay, gentlemen in the Czech shirt. Thank
2: you. Uh, hi, I'm William Perrin. I'm uh, an independent, I suppose, or unaffiliated. Uh-huh. Um, of course, one of the things law loves is, is precedence. And um, we know that in law, uh, we've grappled um, we found it very hard to grapple with things other than humans that, that kill things. And a particular body of law that's failed in the UK is the law of corporate manslaughter based around the 1998 Act, I think it is. Um, I tried to get the police interested in suing Transport for London for corporate manslaughter over the failure of their junction design um, that was killing cyclists in, in King's Cross. And we, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service hit upon the classic problem, which is what is the controlling mind mm. in an organisation as big as, as, as Transport for London? And uh, when the Corporate Manslaughter Act was and, and Homicide Act was was drafted, it was anticipated there'd be about 15 to 20 prosecutions a year, um, and in over sort of 10 or 12 years, there've only been two successful prosecutions. So, I wonder if there are any lessons from the failure of the law um, to act on, on this sort of disembodied minds. And secondly, on your killing machines, um, there's a very good case study which is often forgotten in the first Gulf War when a Patriot missile system um, uh, mistook an RAF tornado for a missile that was attacking it and shot it down and killed the two RAF pilots on board. Patriot missile systems act on what's known as automatic release, which is what it means. It's very very literal. And the Patriot crews are trained to, and I quote this, trust the Patriot. Um, And in this case, the system got it badly wrong. Um, And there's a whole range of human errors around it, but it's been investigated to death um, and much reported. And so it's a very, very early case of a machine killing a machine and uh, machine-killing humans in, in a time of war. But we now see a proliferation of these systems in what are known as uh, close-in kill systems around warships, which uh, in the blink of an eye, the missile has come over the horizon and destroyed your warship. So the system is set on automatic once certain conditions are met, and it just automatically obliterates anything that appears over the horizon. So um, there's a lot of this about, and of course um, AI luminaries have recently signed a big letter saying that AI systems should not ethically be deployed in weapons, but um, they might be a
1: little bit late. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Okay, again, taking the questions in order. um, Yes, I suppose we are guilty, or I am guilty, of anthropomorphizing the machine intelligence. Um, I think this is probably how lawyers tend to make sense of things which aren't human as terms of a legal being. We say this in in corporate law as well. it is also true that there is no doubt that our children will very quickly surpass us um, if we believe or follow this kind of um, developmental uh, phase that people like Kurzweil have got sketched out. They're going to very quickly be ahead of us. Now, again, though, so I'm falling back on the idea here, if you will, as, as the human as parent, that it is our job to try and perhaps in our designs teach them responsibility and as much as possible morality through having a normative set of values. I'm not saying my six values, which I shamelessly stole from Asimov, I'm not saying that these are the values we want. I'm saying we want to have a debate about this. I would hope it doesn't turn into an exercise in self-preservation, but I know there are a lot of people who are very worried about this, including the Astronomer Royal, including uh, Stephen Hawking and very many others who are very worried that as the machines become smarter than we are, they see us as an impediment um, rather than perhaps as their equals or as their parents. Who's to say in 200 years' time they won't view putting humans on trials as being as silly as putting dogs and cats and pigs on trials as we did in the past? I I, I don't think we can dwell on that for the moment. I, I think it's our job, if you will, to try and design in as best as we can the correct morals and responsibilities, and that is through the kind of common norms that we can design. Um, I completely accept the, the, the problem of how you determine you're a robot or a human, and the reverse Turing test. I, 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 I accept that. I mean, you come back to, I, I don't even technically know I'm a human. I believe I'm a human, but I don't think I can prove I'm a human. Um, I mean, how can I actually prove I'm a human and not just some kind of brain inside a body? Um, I believe and I'm confident I'm a human. How can a robot be equally confident it is or is not a robot? I think perhaps what we want to say is, I was perhaps a bit too determinative there, that a robot, if it believes it's a robot, should communicate it's a robot. A human, if they believe they're a human, should communicate they're a human. Uh, Because otherwise it, it does become impossible Um, And thank you. Uh, The the Patriot missile system is something I hadn't thought about, and that's a really good point. And it's something I should look at and build in these military systems, because Tyrannus hasn't yet killed people, but these systems have. And I agree that there is a problem in the legal system generally in dealing with non-human actors. In a sense, that was the point I was making, is that we've had problems in the past with non-human actors, particularly the corporation, um, and we are definitely going to have problems with safety-sensitive systems Especially at the intermediary phase where they're still reliant upon us but making decisions for us that we can't make ourselves. And at the moment all we're doing is the rather dumb thing of saying it's a tool and therefore if the tool breaks we hold liable the person who made the tool. And I don't think that's a long term solution. I think that might hold us for 5, 10 or even 15 years but I don't think that's going to hold us through the next Thirty to forty years, and that's what I'm trying to move away from. I'm trying to say, lawyers think of these machines as tools, and I don't think they are going to be tools for much longer in the way we treat them. So that's that's the point, essentially.
0: Excellent, thank you. So I panel is three people. So, gentleman mm-hmm. in the light brown jacket here, uh, ladies and gentlemen sitting next to right. him.
2: Okay, I'll roll in a fourth one, because you did put your hand up <laughs> last time, Brad. So, gentleman in the back in the white, in the white shirt. Sorry. Okay, um, I'm Paul Bernal from the University of East Anglia, and uh, earlier from here. Um, I have a question about the language you use. You mentioned values. You mentioned laws. You didn't mention rights. Ah, yes. And I'm quite interested in whether you have a place for, effectively, robot rights in any of
0: this. Thank you. There you go, you've got two questions yeah. to think about and answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Elena,
4: I'm studying um, mathematics, I'm not here, but um, anyway, so um, my question relates to the exponential growth of the um, artificial intelligence and the improvements that are happening. Um, so we cannot educate robot, uh, people as fast as we can educate roboters, I think that's the point here. So could you imagine a society where all, like nearly all rational decisions are um, done by machines and the moral decisions are made by human?
1: Thank you. Gianpaolo Ruotolo, I'm a uh, university teacher, professor of international law in Italy and I'm here visiting to the Telos department in King's College. one question, because probably being a lawyer, I can't understand things. <laughs> and so um, when you speak of rules, uh, the, the rules you spoke of, you think to them as a self-contained regime, and if it is this way, how this regime, is, um, how is the regime reports to other regimes, I mean, you use the expression of private international law, do you think also to conflict rules of that system with other systems? Thank you a lot. Thank you.
0: Thank
2: you. And then just up at the back, um, halfway up, there we are. Hello, my name is Francis. I'm a software engineer. i got a question. Uh, How does your framework address the, let's say, a gradual transplant of chips into our body? Let's say... For example, if I, I live to 100 years old and I track dementia and I, my hands got shaken and I get a chip to implant my brain to control my actions, I lose my way of speech and then I got a chip to implant my brain. I got uh, I failed to, re- re- to um, recognize my children and I got a chip to help me remember. And gradually, my brain was entirely, you know, uh, all the functionality replaced by chips and also my body as well. So my question is,
1: when did I die? <laughs> 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 oh, dear. A nice modern version of Lincoln's hammer. Yeah. Um, gosh. Um, I think I, I've got to take that last one right. When do you die? Goodness knows. Um... That's, that is a question, really, that, that lawyers are going to have to deal with. And it's not... I, I, you see, this is one of these future questions, I think, because it's a bit too difficult to try and determine now. We're still looking at kind of what could be and what might be. But um, I think the answer to that is is um, when your children inherit whatever it is that you pass on to them... <laughs> But it becomes a problem. This, this, is, this is what Ray Kurzweil and I was called the singularity, the, kind of the merging of the, the human and the, the machine. And it becomes impossible to distinguish between the two. And you know, at the moment, that is still very far in the future. What we're getting so far is um, in machine intelligence that will do things like act as your memory for you. So, they, w- they will remember things and feed them back, especially for people who have Alzheimer's and things like that. It can act as your memory, improve your memory storage. But it's still very much supplementary to the person. But we do have people who have chips installed, you know, early kind of cyborgs. Um, I think the question then becomes a rather different one as to when you die, although that's a great question. I think the question becomes then what does it mean to go back to that previous question, to be a human, and what does it mean to be a robot? When do you go from being one to the other? Do you transfer from being a human personality to a robot personality? And if you do, does that bring about a change in your status? Speaking as a lawyer, a change in your status in the eyes of the law. Do you stop being a human person? Do you then have to pass on your property to your children because you have died and have now taken on a separate personality? Um, I don't have an answer to that. It it, it is the problem that we're going to have to come to wrestle with. And that's also where it comes back to the point Paul made about the the language and values. And yes, okay, if if somebody wants to say, I will stand up and be the first spokesperson for robots' rights. Um, I think that I didn't use the language and that is my fault or my weakness. I think that was what was behind what I was saying, with this idea that if we don't recognise machines, human-level machine intelligence, as being, at least in law, an autonomous, legal person with all the rights and responsibilities of an autonomous, legal person, then we are creating a permanent underclass. We are creating a modern form of slavery. Um, It's really easy to enslave machines that can't think. But once we start enslaving machines that can think, I think that is morally unacceptable. Which then brings about the bigger question of what happens when the machines become smarter than us, and then do we have to start fighting for human rights, because the machines perhaps determine that we don't fully function in the way that they do. And the whole question might spin back on itself. Thankfully, by then, I reckon that I will either be a cyborg or I'll be dead. So it's, it's, it's probably not questions for us, but for future generations. But I, again, I keep coming back to the main message is, is that I think we can't kick this into the long grass and say this is going to happen 50 years from now. Let's not think about it, because people who work in computer science, people who work in mathematics, people who work in um, software design are starting to think of these questions, and lawyers have to be at that table, because otherwise legal normative values are not being represented, and it it ends up being you you, you end up being the kind of person um, like Richard Susskind who just kind of says, in future everything is going to be done by robots without actually thinking about what this means for us. So I think there's... Yes, I do believe in robot rights. Um, I've kind of written... Oh, the rules, self-contained and reinforced. I I don't think the rules are self-contained. I I think that I'm trying to suggest something which becomes part of that larger body of legal discourse. I think to try and suggest something which is self-contained would be pointless and insular. I wouldn't actually learn, we wouldn't learn anything. And more importantly, in a dialogue with people who work in this area, they're not learning from two and a half thousand years of legal knowledge and legal history. So I think that's very important. Um, And I love the idea, all discretionary decisions made by machines and moral decisions by humans. Um, My worry is a slightly different one, which is, to be honest, what led me to start thinking about this Is the idea that humans are A, lazy, and B, want to hand over control of anything difficult? And my worry is this computer says no environment, where people actually don't think either discretionary or morally. They just follow a program. You go to a bank and ask for a loan, and somebody will sit there and go, How much do you earn? Do you own your own house? Do you have any second jobs? Do you have any children? No. <laughs> and this is the problem. They're not acting as autonomous humans at all. There's no discretionary or moral decision. So I would, I would hate to see a world where discretionary decisions are all made by machines. But I live in fear that maybe not all discretionary decisions, but that we will outsource as many discretionary decisions as we can because it makes life easier for us, which then leaves the moral questions. And I honestly don't know what that then means. Do people feel strongly enough to fight for their moral identity or not? So my problem is more about I want to see us taking responsibility. The whole point of the objective human is to raise the point that we're not taking responsibility for our decisions, discretionary or moral. We're saying somebody else made that decision, it's not my fault. And I think this becomes a real problem where that something else actually has enough autonomy for it to stick as a kind of legal defence and I want us to say you can't do that as a human being you have a responsibility not to blame someone else for what you're doing
0: okay Okay, I think you know I think (sighs) I I can see more questions and more hands but we are up against eight o'clock and and that is when we are due to end but I think there is a a small reception outside so you're very welcome uh, to join us outside I just want to give uh, a quick notice that next week in the Law Series events next Tuesday, we're in conversation with Shami Chakrabarty, talking about her book on liberty. Uh, and you can see more events on the Law Department website. But now I think we need to thank Andrew for a fantastic and very <laughs> similar <laughs>